Hello and welcome to the Real Friends Who Read Books podcast, where my friends and I force each other to read books we wouldn't typically read because that's what a book club is all about. I'm your host, Courtney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Erica and Mary Page. Every other week, we'll dive into one of our picks, exploring the themes and characters and whatever else comes along the way. You know, like a book club, but without the snacks. This is Real Friends Who Read Books. These are my real friends, and we've got some books to read. Let's get to it. This week, we are heading to the theater to ask to be or not to be, or some other Shakespearean phrase, when we discuss M.L. Rio's dark academia novel, If We Were Villains. And now for the back cover summary. Enter the players. There were seven of us then, seven bright young things with wide, precious futures ahead of us. Until that year, we saw no farther than the books in front of our faces. On the day Oliver Marks is released from jail, the man who put him there is waiting at the door. Detective Colburn wants to know the truth, and after 10 years, Oliver is finally ready to tell it. A decade ago, Oliver is one of seven young Shakespearean actors at the Delacre Classical Conservatory, a place of keen ambition and fierce competition. In this secluded world of firelight and leather-bound books, Oliver and his friends play the same roles on stage and off. Hero, villain, tyrant, temptress, ingenue, and extra. But in their fourth and final year, good-natured rivalries turn ugly, and on opening night, real violence invades the students' world of make-believe. In the morning, the fourth-years find themselves facing their very own tragedy and their greatest acting challenge yet, convincing the police, each other, and themselves that they are innocent. Vibeth checketh, dost thou I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Dost thou say I or nay to this tome full of tragedy? Thou says a. I. I can't. I. I. That, that, I can't even do this. <laughs> Sorry, Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, but really, this one really has stuck with me. This certainly will be one I will read, probably actually listen to in the future because it was a masterpiece and I feel like I missed some things and need to go back to catch them. I think I got so excited that I didn't have the patience to try to decode some of the Shakespeare talk, (laughs) which was probably not smart because it was probably like a key part because there was a murder to be solved. Like I was getting distracted. (laughs) Yeah. I'm with you. I just wanted to get to the solving. (laughs) Right. But I just really enjoyed this book because it was so different and such an interesting world to be sucked into. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm really surprised by how much I like this one. And Peter, your point about missing things, though, it did take a really unique kind of patience when I recognized that I was really trying to zip through the Shakespearean parts only to realize that they're really key to the plot, like you said. And so I, I had to take a deep breath, reset, put myself in a different headspace, and then reread the passage from the top a lot. <laughs> and then there were times where I'd sit down to read this and realize I was doing that every single time I would hit a quote. I was like, you know, maybe we're just going to accept defeat today and turn our brains into mush with something else. Put a pin in this, come back later. Um, is this why I finished this book at 7.30 p.m. last night? Perhaps, but that's neither here nor there. It was a good read. I did like it. Maybe one day I'll read it again, not on a deadline. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've i been re 
uh, list. I've been listening to it on an audiobook because I liked it so much. So, and you do you catch things that you didn't catch the first time, and it's nice to hear Shakespeare read the way it's supposed to because I was stumbling over the meter in which it's supposed to be read instead of just like reading it. So, yeah, I'm right there with mm-hmm. you. I'm not doing it right. I'm sure. Yeah, I know I'm yeah. not. <laughs> so it's helpful for someone to just like, do it. I for just you. say everything really emphatically in my head, and I know that's not how it's all supposed to be said. <laughs> I know it's not right. <laughs> um, but as far as if this was an I or a nay, it's a big zounds, yeah, for me. <laughs> Stop it. I looked up. I looked up what the what fuck yeah would be in Shakespeare times, and there was no fuck yeah. But zounds is a blasphemous oath or interjection used, so I just went with that one. <laughs> That's close <Nothing> enough. <laughs> Sorry if I used that wrong. <laughs> Sorry if I used that wrong to anyone who would know. Blame Google, not me. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I feel like this book is just layers and layers of really good writing, and I'm kind of obsessed and hope that ML Rio will write again someday because I'll read anything that she writes. Just because like there's so much to it. Um, it was very dark and real and relatable and also very much like the dynamics of any theater or drama group, uh, minus the murder from my own experience. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, a quick note that I, I pulled some of these questions from the discussion questions in the back of the book because that's what they're there for. Thank you to the publishers of this book for doing the hard work for me. Moving on. <laughs> Enter the players. In this book, we meet seven characters that this story revolves around in their fourth and final year at the Deliker Classical Conservatory. At this point, they have all been typecast for nearly every play they've acted in together. We have Richard, the tyrant, James, the hero, Oliver, the sidekick, Meredith, the femme fatale, Ren, the ingenue, Philippa, the extra, and Alexander, the villain. It would be a lot to go over each character individually, but I did want to talk about how these characters seem to fit these roles both on and off stage. Uh, Do you think they were cast in these roles because their personalities fit them? Or do you think that after so long, they began to incorporate parts of their characters into their personalities off stage? Um, First, I'd like to say that I was pronouncing Delacre wrong. (laughs) So was I. I only knew because I've been listening to the I was like, Delacre. Belcher. Like Belcher? Was, like Bob Belcher? I was pronouncing it in my head like French, like like delicious. 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 Just delicate. I like that better. That sounds better, especially for a cedar mm. company. Anyway. <clears throat> yeah, maybe a little bit of both. I think they were casted because of their personalities, but then they continued to play into their characters where it started to bleed into their personal life so a big tangly mess yes that feels very true to me it's almost like they felt as if playing these intense characters gave them permission to let the worst parts of their personality shine in the spirit of putting your whole self into it there is that one quote when the detective asks oliver if he blames shakespeare for any of this and he says something about how a good Shakespearean actor or a good actor of any stripe really doesn't just say say the words, he feels them. We all felt the passions of the characters we played as if they were our own. But a character's emotions don't cancel out the actors. Instead, you feel both at once. Feels like they're taking that 
as like a permission slip to just let the worst parts of a character overtake the worst parts of your own personality. Mm. Yes, that's the that's the quote I had marked as well. Yes, that's exactly how it is. So, bonus, what would your role be among these actors? Uh, if if you were in this little group of seven, um, for example, as much as I'd love to say I'm the I would be the femme fatale because like when I was acting, that's what I wanted to be, or even the ingenue. Um, but I most definitely. Philippa, the extra. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, did I try so hard to be anything but? Um, But in my heart of hearts, I know that I am a supporting role. The person in the background paying attention to everything and watching the drama play out afar and perhaps kind of cleaning up messes afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right there with you. I think I also would be a supporting role. Maybe a loyal sidekick. I don't know. I would just be happy playing the tree in the background. (laughs) (laughs) every kid's first role of drama (laughs) right but shit y'all we cannot all have the i'm just here as an extra energy one of us has to be moving the plot forward no scopes not it it. (laughs) i'll be the villain i like that i do like that although actually i'm just kidding i did look up the official definition of femme fatale and honestly i'm kind of here for it It is an attractive and seductive woman, especially one who is likely to cause distress or disaster to a man who becomes involved with her. What's that you say? Distress and disaster to men who come near me? I am sold. Say no more. (laughs) See, I would, I would, if, if we're talking about the three of us, I would cast Mary Page as the ingenue because she gives girl next door vibes. And I would cast you as the femme fatale for sure. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll be the disaster. Person, I'll be the person in drag running around like this. <laughs> You'll play all the, the male characters. I'll play all the male characters for you. He's doing everything and then, else. And then he, as the old ladies, if there's any older women that are in there, I'll I'll do that too. So she's really carrying the show. <laughs> Just picking up the slack for my lack of sex appeal and girl next door in this. <laughs> Oh, God. Ah, All right. So the next question, this one's from the back of the book. Uh, Oliver repeatedly identifies himself as a bystander, secondary character, or interloper. How does his role as observer affect his role as a storyteller? On page 102, he says, I was quiet, motionless, in my own estimation, pointless, a fuse with no fire and nothing to ignite. Is he really just a pawn between James and Richard, or is he more integral in the conflict from the outset? I think seeing the story from Oliver's perspective was helpful because he's probably the most relatable to us as readers or most average, whereas everyone else is complex or they have bigger personalities that might have gotten in the way of getting the full story possibly. I don't know. I'm not sure yet. (laughs) That makes sense. My God. You want to talk about being a bystander? Let's go back to page 317. When James is on his drunk rampage at the cast party, the second one, and he grabs Ren and makes her go to bed with him in front of Oliver and Alexander and Flippa, and Oliver considers going after him, and Alexander tells him to stand down? <laughs> You're being a bad bystander, buddy. This is how people's lives get ruined. Mm-hmm. And ran. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, I do think Oliver is giving up some of his power 
as a player in this story by taking on the bystander identity mm-hmm. in this conflict. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's, yeah, he's giving up power and he's not taking responsibility for how important he is to yeah. the group too. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, yeah. I think there's some accountability in there. Yeah. So I think he's, I think he's more integral in this conflict than he believes um, I think seeing things from Oliver's perspective can skew things for the readers too. Um, if you look at it from the fact that James, he, he had, he had a really great relationship with James in his opinion. Um, and James, in my most humble opinion is shitty. <laughs> so can you only imagine someone. how James would have been portrayed or this story would have been told if it were told from like Meredith's point of view, as opposed to, um, as opposed to Oliver's, like, what would this story have been like if Alexander told? I feel like Alexander was more of a bystander to the drama that happened. That's so, true. Yeah, you know, Alexander was the ultimate bystander. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. He was busy doing he was his own al- shit. Always in the corner, saying, "Do nothing. Do nothing. <laughs> do nothing. Come smoke some weed with me." I was just gonna say, Hi. "Do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> do drugs and watch." <laughs> I would have loved Alexander. <laughs> I really would have. Or you would have been like, my type. <laughs> well, no. Okay, so I was going to ask this question. Just because there's so much romance in this house. Um, but I didn't put it on here. But because you said that. Alexander is absolutely the person that I probably would have been in love with. Because I was in love with people that I were just... It was a hopeless cause for me. <laughs> Uh, i would have been in love with them all so (laughs) yeah honestly probably same yeah i'm like trying to narrow it down to just one and i'm like everyone but richard yeah yeah everyone but richard i think i would be like oh okay what about him disgusting (laughs) i'll hook up with anyone but richard well you know (laughs) i probably would have gone for richard too though because i have like i yeah i have a i have a (laughs) You don't have a type. I probably would have. I can't even say that I wouldn't. (laughs) Dangerous. Let's go for it. (laughs) Just bad for me was my type. Even when I read like book, even when I read other books that these are demon qualities. I'm always just like, oh, why does he have to be the bad guy? I love him so much. (laughs) So (laughs) apparently, I have a thing for morally great characters. (laughs) Uh, okay um so in the same vein uh as the question we just answered do you believe james's story of what happened between him and richard if so to what degree personally i'm skeptical big (laughs) surprise there (laughs) um there was something about the tension between richard and james even before the night of Macbeth that um was hard for hard to miss Um, so I was curious what your opinion was. I was just believing exactly whatever James had said had happened, but now I am second guessing that and I have more questions and need a full play-by-play of what originally happened. Like, I know James hit Richard, but now, like, how did he get in the water again? How close was the shed to the lake? I don't know. And that's going to drive me nuts. I need, like, the action crime scene play-by-play. Anyways, I know Courtney and I were chatting about this yesterday. 
And I think we both came up with the conclusion that James is a little sketchy. So personally, I think I need to reread this book before giving my full opinion. Oh, all right. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, man. I kind of believe it. Richard seemed (laughs) shitty and violent. Yeah. So it did kind of feel like self-defense. Like, yeah. But did he take it farther? I don't know. It felt like self-defense that spiraled very out of control because of the choices that they made mm-hmm. immediately after, and then letting him die in the lake, and then in the days and weeks following, not cop into the fact that, like, oops, yeah. I had this very scary confrontation with him down by the boathouse, and then I conked him in the head with a boat hook. Yeah. But yeah, so I have a theory. I have a theory. I would love to hear your theory. <laughs> mm-hmm. I fully believe that Richard was an ass and unhinged at this point. That's your theory. 100%. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, and I, but I'm not 100% that this was just self-defense for James. I think, I don't, I just, I don't know. There's something I just don't fully believe about it. I think Richard's accusation was the catalyst for James to lash out. But, um, was there actually an accusation made by Richard that, Oliver and James were in love with each other did he really yell that or was Richard just being an ass and I think James is guilty of pulling Oliver into this more potentially than necessary by telling Oliver well he he said that what why don't you go be queer together he obviously knew that Oliver had feelings for him I don't know I just I feel like James is some hateful shit I think I think James is a pretty shitty shady guy there's just something about him that's off I don't know. And he he's a really good actor. Like, why would he... Ru- he ran into the water once he realized that that Richard was dead, right? The, in the morning. And tried James, to save him. James was the one that did that. But why would he let people stop him then? Because if Richard did live, then he would, you know, he would obviously tell everyone... Like, if he did live, he would tell everyone that it was James that attacked him. I just think he was being an actor. An actor. <laughs> an actor <laughs> i didn't describe this theory very well but i'm I, i'm skeptical i'm envisioning like a, a pin board with like red string some tags I'm like, I'm like two seconds away from coal burning this place up just <laughs> yeah coal, coal burning, burning. <laughs> not to be confused with coal burning power that's a different thing different we're not going to get into that here that's Detective Colburn, who we'll talk about in a moment. Moving moving on. Speaking of Colburn, I'm going to go to the Colburn question because I just brought him up. Let's talk about Detective Colburn for a minute. Detective Colburn was brought into this case early on despite Richard's death being ruled an accident. He couldn't let it go. He eventually solves this case, although he questions the guilt of the person he ended up putting behind bars. Ten years later, he is retired but is still unable to walk away from this mystery it's just nags at him. Um, when Oliver is finally paroled, Colburn asks one final time if he can get the truth from him, prompting the beginning of this book. Why do you think Colburn was so stuck on this case, even after Richard's death was ruled an accident? Why, after all these years, do you think Oliver decided to finally tell him the truth? Well, didn't Meredith pretty much tell the detective about James. So I think he was confused because he was convinced it was James, yet Oliver was taking the blame. And he probably wants to know why in the hell someone would go so easily to jail for someone else. I would want to know that too. Like, that's weird. Yeah. 
that sticks with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, after Meredith's explanation, he just knew too much to let it go. Mm-hmm. He told Oliver that he showed up at night expecting to arrest someone, but that somebody wasn't him. Right. And I really do appreciate that kind of can't shake it persistence with the things that bug you at work, because that is the kind of can't shake it persistence with which my own work mistakes haunt me. So I see, I see the similarities there. I respect <laughs> it. But why do you, why do you both think that even before? Because Meredith didn't come to him until the party, uh, the one of the parties. Was it the the last the one, King, the King Lear party? Mm-hmm. Um, but Colburn had been coming around, checking things out, snooping, like coming to the castle and visiting Oliver, especially, um, quite often before then. Why do you what do you, what do you think it was about this case that had him like coming back before Meredith said anything? Is it the fact that Richard's face was smashed in? <laughs> I think I mean (laughs) just starting there right I think I think it was it was has to be partly that but I think also he saw maybe is that he saw that they all conveniently forgot stuff at the same time too Mm -hmm. I think he just didn't try I think he didn't trust them because they were actors and -hmm. they were good actors yeah Yes, yes, yes. A bummer for any time a murder happens on an actor's <laughs> circle. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whoops. Um, so finding Richard in the lake before we talk about that. Let's get this out of the way. These people spoke in prose like some people talk small talk. Was this annoying to you or did you find yourself blind to it by the end of it like I did? These characters, they lived and breathed Shakespeare. Um, do you feel like they lost sight of reality after four years of four plus years, because some of them acted did Shakespeare before then. Um, do you think that this affected their choices that they made when they found Richard in the lake? Uh, it was annoying. <laughs> the whole small talk with the Shakespeare stuff, but you know, whatever <laughs> I, I will say, I feel like it did really set up the cultish world they were living in. Mm-hmm. And I do think that this whole eat, breathe, sleep, Shakespeare, tight-knit, competitive group thing did not benefit them. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Really kind of struggled to keep track of what they were trying to communicate with this. <laughs> um, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I had to put the book down a couple times, come back to it later, because I did not have the patience for their nonsense. But I do agree with what you're saying, Paige. I think it really helps solidify their culty vibe. Like, if you were in, you were in. And if you didn't understand Shakespeare, goodbye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really helped them immerse themselves in the delusion. Yeah. I agree with both of you. Um, and I refer again to the quote that Erica had mentioned earlier. Um, they literally felt these emotions that they were acting and I think this idea of living in the life of Shakespeare with intense, the intense teaching methods that like Gwendolyn had, where you're literally just breaking down your everything you think about you and just having everyone talk about it while you stand in the center of a circle. Um, Psychotherapy. Traumatic. Right. <laughs> yes. Then there's the sleep deprivation and the 
and the pressure to learn all of these lines that are not easy, like we've said earlier. We can't even read them in our head without stumbling. Yeah. <laughs> um, I definitely, I think that led to them acting as if they were not really in the real world when they found Richard, but they found him like that. This was just another part of the play. Um, mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. no one in their right mind would see their friend lying in the, like drowning in a lake with their face smashed in and just be like, hold on, let's talk about this real quick. That is some that is some tragedy, shit. You know, yeah, um, I, rem- that's tragic. I remember as I was reading it, I was like, "Wait, what? This isn't a question. <laughs> Why are we thinking this way?" But it makes sense if you look at what their world is. Their world is skewed. Mm-hmm. They're so insulated from reality. Yes. How sad. Um. Let's go from tragedy to comedy. Let's talk about all the love going around the castle where the fourth years resided. Um, Richard, what Richard, when alive, was dating Meredith, but she cheated on him with Oliver. Oliver was into Meredith, but had unacknowledged love for James. James was into Ren, but was scared away by both Richard and his feelings for Oliver, if he actually had them. Still not, uh, still kind of sus about this. Then you have Philippa, who is getting it on with the combat teacher, and uh, Alexander dating a third year. Everyone is getting some in the theater department. (laughs) Um, This group was rather incestuous when it came to dating, but it seems like a a common trope in small friend groups, uh, especially like in TV shows and and such and so on. Just look at the show Friends. I hate Joey and Rachel together. I will die on this hill. Um, (laughs) What are your thoughts on this? What effect did it have to the outcome of the story? I mean, it's bound to happen. Especially when you are in a closed-off setting like this fancy theater college and only have so many options. And when everyone is so close, feelings are definitely going to get hurt. So absolutely, I think it had an out- effect on the outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly what you just said. They were such an exclusive group. It seemed like they talked to almost nobody else at school. So of course, they were going to get it on with each other. Spicy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely <laughs> positive it impacted their choices throughout the story. There's no way it didn't. Again, right. spicy. <laughs> well, I just, I think of like when we were in our small Catholic school, and like, what our graduating classes were what like 60 people so like yes everyone you're like one day you're and this is a middle school so we're gonna use air quotes with dating because that actually didn't happen um but one day you're mm-hmm. dating one person and then like a week later they're dating your best friend and you just have to be okay with it because they're your best friend and you don't have many options for other best <laughs> friends like these types of environments, they they change what you'll actually, like, what you're willing to deal with from, like, other humans because you're kind of forced to in these small groups. Like, what a weird place. I'm just what going to seventh place? grade. <laughs> Take me out of there. Get me out of here. out of there. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, it's wild. Okay. Here's another question from the book. When Oliver ventures into Richard's room the morning of the King Lear cast party, he struggles with feelings of guilt and old affection, but also insists he would be a fool to regret for one minute that he was gone. 
at this on page 320. Is this true? And if it is, why is he feeling so remorseful now and not earlier in the story? Yeah, I think because he realizes that everyone is falling apart. It's as if they aren't properly balanced as a group anymore. Their like dynamic has shifted. <clears throat> yeah, they didn't really realize Richard's death was the end of an era, despite how large his presence loomed over them in life. Like, of course, it was going to change their dynamic, but it seems like he's almost mourning the life they all had, even if when Richard was alive, it was super volatile. Yeah, I agree with both of you. Um, his death was the death of life as they had known it for three years. They were at the tail end of this. They were so close. And this just, it changed everything at like a really important time for them too. Um, mm-hmm. And they just were not prepared. I think I think Oliver's guilt was of being a catalyst to ruining everything. Even, mm-hmm. I, I don't think he, I don't think he, he obviously didn't feel guilt for Richard being dead, but he felt guilt for changing the dynamics of this group. Yeah. Um, and he took, wait, no, what did I say? He took the blame, but put, yeah, he took the blame for that, but he put blame on Rich and he put blame on Richard, but it's wild that he didn't really place any blame on James for all of this. Yeah. He was in love with him. Because he was, was infatuated. Love. Love. <laughs> Put the love goggles on. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Speaking of of Oliver's love, he ended up up taking the blame for James's actions and going to jail for a long time, losing all of his friends, except for Philippa, who would visit him. Uh, she She stuck with him all 10 years. What a great friend. A different um, kind of love. A different kind of love. Um, when he's when he's released, after he tells Colburn his story, he goes and he uh, finds Meredith, and they begin a relationship together. But then he gets a letter that James had left after he had died because James had, or is, he's presumed dead. So how did you all feel about the ending in the letter that James left? What's your take on that? Is James truly gone? What do you think Oliver will do with this little sliver of hope that he now has in his grasps? Mm. (laughs) I'm so mad about this. I was just reading way too far into the letter yesterday because I was like, this cannot be it. Like, we can't just leave this, like, open ending where Oliver is left continuing to pine for James. Mm-hmm. Instead of focusing on his relationship with Meredith once again, that just cannot happen, and I don't like it. Ugh. He's going to take that little sliver of hope and spiral. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Once again, I'm taking everything at face value, so I just assumed James was gone. I was like, yeah, whatever. They never found him, but like, see ya. But we were really left so much room for him to fuck it all up pining after a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> some hamlet shit um honestly (laughs) i i think it's really funny because i'm typically the one that finds 
every takes everything at face value and i am finding hidden messages in all of this shit and i don't believe anything um i think i think this cryptic message to oliver was james's final act of creating like a hold over oliver and his love and devotion because i think james is that shitty um it's dark but it's what makes sense to me um whether he's dead or not oliver will truly never know peace now this will cause friction with meredith it will keep oliver searching it's just so shitty damn it james and also poor fucking meredith who i don't think i who i just i feel very bad for meredith me too she's gone through it man from her perspective it's like really sad Talk about a tragedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a tragedy. <laughs> Talk about a tragedy. <laughs> so I found this book littered with great quotes, um, and scenes, and all of these things that I heavily annotated. So I was wondering what stuck out with you, or what you what you found most memorable about this this book. Is it weird that I found the most memorable part for me were like any Oliver and James moments because I was really picking up on the sexual tension there and was trying to understand what their relationship was the entire time. So much tension. (laughs) So much. That really jumped out at you. Yeah. Yeah. I also loved the Romeo and Juliet Night of the Ball. Mm -hmm. Wild assignment. Um, Any program like this would cause me to break out in hives. See, yeah, I the difference between you and I. Yeah, I would, I would also break out knives with you, Erica. Even just being in the audience, like being a person that, like, one of the main cast, like, decided to recite lines to. Absolutely not. I'm hightailing it out of there. Mm, This part makes my heart like I want. It makes me sad that I didn't actually go to school for theater like I had wanted to for a while because I would have loved to do something like this. I wasn't great. I was more, I was really good with like the organization and the bit behind the scenes stuff, but I just really liked being in drama and being like around these people and seeing these types of things. And I like, when I was reading the Macbeth scene part and not the fight, not the thing afterwards at the party, that was pretty rough. Although interesting. Um, (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Although interesting. Um, but just how they they didn't get to like practice their lines with other people and they kind of just had like these cues that they had to go out that to me feels like a fun game that i that we would have played cuz i am the most anxious person ever but i would have loved this just loved it but i thrived when i was doing this kind of stuff with all of my my drama friends we would play games like this and stuff when we would all hang out together so cannot compute I never we, understood we actually so we had a really fun party, the the drama group and I, where we all Really had fun party is so subjective. I had the time of my life. It was probably my favorite party I've ever been to. I'm going to tell you about it because it's fun and we've been talking about <laughs> death, so why not? Um, we all had to dress up as like a character and go to the party and we had to stay in character the entire time until someone guessed um, who you were. But I did have a really good time, and now seeing your faces as I'm explaining it, uh, you guys don't get it, and that's just sad for you. So <laughs> <laughs> that just gives me so anxiety. I have a hard enough time just being myself. <laughs> I don't want to go to a party at all. <laughs> no, it's fun because I don't like going. To Cor- okay, Courtney, not great at parties, not her thing. I like to hang out with the pets, but that's Courtney, why you brought your own. 
Courtney as someone else, she can have fun because she gets to be she gets to be someone else. I have a photo of this. I should find it for you all. Oh, you should. I would love to see that. I could see you, you know, doing that and having a fantastic time. And I can see other people having a fantastic time with that. That's like the murder mystery thing. What are those called? The murder mysteries. Yeah. The murder mystery. It's called that. Murder mystery. (laughs) No, murder mystery. It's like murder mystery theater. Dinners. Dinners. And they, yeah. Oh, I love it all. Yeah. I could see people loving that. Not for me. <laughs> I like to watch like in the back. Like I don't want to be a part of it. I like yeah. to watch from a fire exit. Yeah, that's fine. Erica and I will be a fire exit. <laughs> drinking at the fire exit, just watching everything go down. I'm drinking Shirley Temple's in the fire exit. Yep. yep. <laughs> that's uh, my drink I, of choice lately, y'all. That sounds good. A Shirley Temple? Join you. Hell yeah, I've got really a duum. Young Courtney used to get virgin, uh, used to get virgin. Look, they are virgin. I used to get the Shirley Temples all the time when I was little because I made me feel cool. When we would do our Applebee's dinner. bought the supplies to make them at home. <laughs> That's, That's so how cute. committed I am to Shirley Temples. <laughs> um, so some of the quotes I liked, you can justify anything if you do it poetically enough. Uh, That's on page 249. I really liked that but one. Is that true? In your mind, yes, absolutely. In your, I, I don't think I like that. I don't think I don't think you can you can actually justify things like legally uh, if you do it. <laughs> or, or, yeah. I disagree. Um, or like as a humanitarian, if you're you know. But in your mind, I think people can easily justify things if they make it pretty enough in their noggin. Um. I also liked the quote, people are passionate and flawed and fallible. They make mistakes. Their memories fade. Their eyes deceive them. Um, and I also really enjoyed all of Ren's speech during Richard's memorial service. The entire time she, like, I was reading that, I was like, oh, wow, this is really, well, this is really good. This is really good. So I'm not going to mm-hmm. read that whole thing, though, because get the book. You should actually definitely get the book and read it if you haven't. And if you haven't, why are you listening to us right now? Stop this spoilers everywhere you're too far in at this point I, yeah it's too far you come too far <laughs> but we appreciate that you're here <laughs> we do i just don't want to ruin it for you too late um okay so what are some of our favorite shakespearean plays if we've had had any or a movie based on a play by shakespeare Honestly, I did look up like all the different like modern movies that are based off of Shakespeare plays and I'll probably be watching those within the next couple of weeks because <laughs> it's now in my mind. <laughs> um, but Romeo and Juliet, hands down. I mean, I mean, you all know me. It's the greatest love story, tragedy. I lo- live for this stuff. Also, the 1996 version of Romeo and Juliet. I mean, come on. It's one of my ultimate favorite movies <laughs> oh leo oh leo <sighs> young leo <laughs> i haven't gotten much into shakespeare i remember a lot of spark notes in high school when we were going through the section but shout out to the 96 romeo and juliet i did go through a big phase with that mm-hmm. where i watched that over and over because of leo oh yeah and I also, I mean, I don't know. If I looked up that list of movies page, I'd probably be like, oh, I didn't know these were on here. I love this movie. I didn't know it was based on Shakespeare. 
Right. I just don't know anything about Shakespeare. Like, um, we're the ones. She's the man. She's the man. Uh, ten things I hate Great about movie. you. Mm-hmm. Ten, ten things oh, I, I hate love about that you one. is is uh, based off the Taming of the Shrew. I'm updating um, my answer to that. Yeah, ten things I hate about you. Wow, greatest movie of our young lives, alongside so Romeo good. and Juliet with Leo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Because oh my god, so good. Um, I went through a pretentious Shakespeare phase when I was younger. I would walk around with my <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, and I think I had Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, um and Othello because those are the ones they teach in high school and I wasn't going to stray away from that. <laughs> I'd walk yeah. around like annotating things in these books but not really knowing what I was annotating because it's <laughs> I didn't have brain space for this at the time. I was living my own tragedy and shit. So <laughs> um, I think you brought me on to like watching Romeo and Juliet I'm pretty sure. Yeah. You probably had it on like all the time. That sounds right. Mm-hmm. Yes. I would watch it, like, I would just, as soon as it would end, I would just start it back over again and rewatch yeah. it. <laughs> you were with it, was like, that with all movies. <laughs> yes. If I find something I like, I I really like it. Um, even this book. Look, at, I've already started listening to it again. I just, <laughs> I, Consistent. When I like something, when I like something, I really like it. Um, <laughs> so any final thoughts about this book? that uh, anything that i missed or any if anything that you wanted to i don't know share i i think for the second read i'm going to pay closer attention to the other characters and see if we were led astray by oliver due to his infatuation with james very interested in kind of looking at it from everyone else's perspective mhm yeah I didn't know that I was going to re-listen to this one again, but after having this conversation, I think I might want to listen to it mm-hmm. to experience the Shakespearean parts as they were intended and not just emphatically shouted in my brain. Yeah, yeah same. <laughs> yeah. Right now I'm to the part where they're, they're doing Macbeth on the beach and it does make it, it makes a difference. Um, it makes a difference. Man, oh. imagine that. I really like it. I need to finish it, though. I am I only have a couple days left before I have to return it. Um, Damn the library. That's although I, I refuse to get a library card. <laughs> yeah, that's why. <laughs> There's a timeline. <laughs> a deadline. <sighs> ah. Yeah. So, I don't really have... I mean, I was just going to say about... I was just going to talk about how I don't like James, but I've kind of... I've hit the nail on the head already with you that You let one. us know. I do you like James? <laughs> I'm very skeptical of James. I don't trust him. I think remain I, skeptical. I forever, forever skeptical. Which I really want a shirt with that on it. Um, yeah. I just <laughs> I think James and Oliver's attraction was one to one another was based on the fact that they both played off of each other's weaknesses. I think James needed attention and Oliver needed someone to make him feel like he was visible. Um, and I think that James took advantage of that um when i was listening to this again uh oliver had mentioned james's parents and how they're really cool people but they're not good parents like they're just not parental and to me that just says that james has always been looking for adoration and love and he got that from from oliver so i'm not 100 sure if he had shared romantic feelings as much as he really loved being loved 
And I think he saw that being taken away from him, uh, from Meredith. And yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Everyone, everyone focused on Richard being a bad guy, for which he was. But I don't think, I don't think it was, I don't think the focus was on James enough because it was told by Oliver. Now it's that time that we wrap things up with a one sentence summary. I have no words. Chef's kiss on this one. Or maybe I do have a word. Zounds. (laughs) (laughs) I am eagerly awaiting Courtney's second pretentious Shakespeare phase. (laughs) It's coming. I feel it coming. (laughs) I already went to the bookstore and I was like, oh, the Shakespeare section. There's... (laughs) Um, my one sentence summary is I can't get this story out of my brain it's so damn good so (laughs) that's my summary okay well that's that for that we'll be dropping our upcoming reads in the show notes if you want to read along for next time coming up next we've got The Inheritance Games by Jennifer Lynn Barnes this book has been on my list for months and months so I'm very pumped to finally be able to read it and discuss it with you all next time And then Save Yourself by Cameron Esposito, a memoir that tackles sexuality, gender, and equality, and how her Catholic upbringing prepared her for a career as an outspoken lesbian comedian in ways the Pope could have never imagined. Just in time for Pride! Yay! (laughs) And finally, Shadow and Bone by Lee Bardugo, currently a running series on Netflix and my new fantasy obsession. Move over, Sarah J. Mass. I've got a new favorite. <laughs> I've burned through the entire uh, series of this in, in a week and a half, so Yay. I'm very excited to talk about it. I'm feeling weird today, guys. I'm sorry. That yeah. is really funny. We're real friends who read books. I'm Courtney. I'm Mary Page. <laughs> and I'm Erica. Get to reading. See you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. <laughs> See you later. We're feeling weird today. So, so gotta go. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Gotta go. Bye. <laughs> Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you find yourself on Instagram, check out our page at realfriends underscore podcast or our website realfriendsbookclub.com Special thanks to Brandon Schmunk for our theme music and thank you for restarting the internet because my connection was bad. (laughs) (laughs) And we can't forget to extend a huge thank you to our friend Jordan Stewart for making us look cooler than we really are. You're a slut, I'm a slut. (laughs) You're a bird, I'm a bird. We're all sluts. (laughs)